Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Recipe for Frustration, Ordering a Quick Cup of Black Coffee by Heather Haddon. Then an article by Matthew Hennessy, Who's Afraid of Chat GPT? And then Fritz Francoise and Negda Ogdobide have an article, Med Schools Are Wrong on Rankings. Then Pauline Steinhorn's article, Why My Grandmother Helped a Nazi's Boy. And we'll finish with an article by Kareen Hajar, Jiddu's Guide to a Long and Happy Life. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Recipe for Frustration, Ordering a Quick Cup of Black Coffee. Alan Wicker is used to old looks from baristas when he stops by a coffee shop. His order is unusual, black coffee. Asking for just coffee with no added context without going through a round of 20 questions with the server has become impossible at this point, said Mr. Wicker, a 23-year-old student from Shelbyville, Indiana. In a nation a wash in pistachio cream cold brew, an iced chocolate almond milk shaken espresso with chestnut praline syrup, black coffee drinkers like Mr. Wicker are becoming a rare breed. What lovers of straight black consider simple, easy to pour orders can wind up stuck behind a jam of customized multi-pup concoctions, they said. Sometimes their pristine black joe is lightened with sugar or cream anyway. Some baristas seem bewildered by the concept of coffee taken plain. Mr. Wicker said his purest take makes him feel like an outcast. I don't know a single person within my age range that enjoys drinking black coffee. Hassles over getting black coffee aren't unique to Starbucks, which Mr. Wicker patronizes, but afflict many chains offering complicated, customizable brews, according to black coffee enthusiasts. Austin Evers, a 33-year-old nurse anesthetist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, said the drive through lines at his local Dunkin' cafes are often clogged with people ordering complicated drinks, even when he pulls up at 6.30 a.m. for his black coffee. It seems like a system that just is not sustainable, he said. Ask about Starbucks Corporation's black coffee practices. A company spokesman referred to a recent earnings call in which executives said that new equipment is increasing efficiency and improving service times. Duncan Chief Marketing Officer Jill Nelson said customers can get their drinks faster by ordering ahead on the chain's app and that the company is always looking for ways to improve things for customers. She said it recently introduced a darker blend to please black coffee drinkers. Bashar Mushlish, a 27-year-old systems engineer, said he waited 
30 minutes last month at the Green Valley, California Starbucks for his black coffee. He said his 10-second pour was held up by orders taking far longer. When you're waiting at Starbucks for your black coffee, but the person before you ordered venti, ice, crisscross, applesauce, double shot, check engine, oat milk, Diet Coke, macchiato with light triangle ice cubes, he vented on Twitter. Mr. Mushless said he still goes to Starbucks. If black coffee drinkers feel like a shrinking minority, it's because they are. The number of iced lattes, cold brews, ice mochas, and iced Americanos on coffee chain menus rose by double digits in the past five years, while regular filter coffee options declined 24%, data from market research firm Technomic Incorporated show. Tim Noble, 60, an auto industry project manager, says he sometimes gets confused looks when he asks baristas at his local Detroit Starbucks to fill his coffee to the top of the cup with no room for milk, syrups, or foam. He said he used to add cream and sugar, but switched to black to save time and calories. It has only been half successful, he said, since he sometimes gets stuck behind long lines of cars in the drive-thru, which he attributes to complex drinks that take time to construct. Bryce Bunting of Statesboro, Georgia, chief executive of an industrial valves company, said Starbucks could improve order wait times and boost sales by catering more to black coffee drinkers like himself. They want to reach 1,500 orders per day, put in an express lane for black coffee so I don't have to wait behind 20 people ordering a half-soy mocha latte frappuccino, he said. At Starbucks, the world's largest coffee chain, 80% of customers add milk, sweetener, syrups, or other modifiers to their coffee, said Andrew Linerman, the company's vice president of Global Coffee and Tea, during a recent coffee tasting at the company's headquarters where black coffee was featured. Starbucks estimates that each year it sells about $1 billion of coffee drinks with modifiers such as syrups and sauces, a figure that has doubled since 2019. Howard Schultz, the chain's longtime leader, initially resisted offering frilly sweet drinks like the caramel frappuccino. Mr. Schultz has said he still prefers his coffee black. Some black coffee drinkers said they take pride in being able to savor its strong, bitter taste without masking it with syrups and foams. I think that black coffee is hard for a lot of people, especially if they are just starting out, said University of Missouri student Blaze Fields, 19. Some Starbucks baristas who have to run back and forth across cafe prep areas to make complex drinks said they wished more customers could appreciate the chain's coffee in its purest form. And many people don't seem to know what black coffee is, Barista said. Some customers will order black coffee, they said, and later complain it contained no sugar or cream. Abby Clifford, a 25-year-old black coffee drinker from Ohio, said she often gets her Dunkin' coffee order back with cream in it. Maybe they think I mean plain coffee, and that plain means just with one cream, she said. But that's just not what black coffee means at all. Some Starbucks workers 
said they themselves sometimes wonder whether black coffee should include sugar or room for milk. They ask customers who order their coffee plain whether they also want it sweetened just to make sure. It's the biggest debate, said Brooke Cross, a 20-year-old Starbucks barista in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What is black coffee? And now Matthew Hennessy's article, Who's Afraid of Chat GPT? Pinocchio still wants to be a real boy. That's what I take from the avalanche of commentary about the new crop of large language models that power applications such as Chat, GBT, and Bing Chat. Some call it artificial intelligence. I don't. Artificial intelligence is an oxymoron, like virtual reality. A thing can't be both itself and its opposite at the same time. True intelligence is genuine, unprogrammable. It's the product of experience. We don't download the world, we encounter it, sometimes roughly. We take our lumps. We learn the hard way not to stick our hands in the fire. The best you can say about artificial intelligence is that it's a facsimile of human intelligence. But a fax of a thing is never the thing itself. While false eyelashes may look amazing, they aren't eyelashes. Imitation crab meat may work for a California roll, but it isn't meat from a crab. A computer that tells jokes isn't a comedian, it's only a well-crafted fake. Silicon Valley is run by people holding to a different definition of intelligence than the rest of us. Engineers place a high value on the ability to solve complex problems. But why should everyone live by that standard? Many people are smart about some things and dumb about others. A child knows that solutions can create new problems. The world isn't a mathematical equation. ChatGPT joins a long list of big tech products unleashed on the world without adequate forethought. Everyone has simply been required to adjust to the social externalities which aren't imaginary. Humans are anxious creatures. A chatbot recently caused a mild media panic when it told the journalist that it wants to be alive. A story in the New York Post quoted a British scientist saying that rogue AI could kill everyone. This is frightening but silly. I'm not thrilled by artificial intelligence, but it isn't the apocalypse. If it makes you feel better, imagine a self-aware chat GPT speaking with Pinocchio's hopeful, high-pitched voice. Am I a real boy? Maybe it's been a while since you saw the 1940 Walt Disney classic. The answer, delivered by the luminous blue fairy, is no. Pinocchio and walk and talk, but he's not a real boy. He's a marionette made of wood and strings. The blue fairy magically brings him to life because Geppetto, the kindly old craftsman, wishes for a son. Pinocchio can become a real boy only if he proves himself brave, truthful, and unselfish. A high bar for a boy, impossible for a chatbot. Disney fixed it so that Pinocchio got what he wanted, but the real world is run by a less sentimental studio. There are no magic wands. A thing can't become 
what it isn't just because someone wishes it so. Ours isn't the first generation to frighten itself with technological progress, nor are we unique in our compulsion to assign human qualities to inanimate objects. But people are more than large language models in skin suits. We are stardust. We are spirits in the material world. We are the world. The Capettos of Silicon Valley would do well to remember it. Now, med schools are wrong on rankings. A growing number of medical schools have announced that they will no longer share data with United States News and World Report. These schools claim that the magazine's annual rankings hinder their ability to increase diversity. New York's ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai asserted that the rankings undermine its commitment to anti-racism and outreach to diverse communities. Such claims aren't supported by evidence. The ranking methodology, as currently constructed, includes consideration of students' medical college admission test scores and undergraduate grade point averages, as well as other criteria. But medical schools have always been free to admit anyone they choose, regardless of their rankings. It's true that diversity isn't a criterion in the United States news methodology, but why should that stop schools from recruiting minority applicants or establishing a campus culture that encourages and values diversity? There is nothing in a thoughtful admissions process that explicitly prevents medical schools from assembling a student body based on anything other than academic performance, holistic reviews, and interviews of candidates. Additionally, United States News makes its decision independent of the Liaison Committee on Medical Education Standards on Diversity and Inclusion, which are part of all the accreditation requirements of medical schools. These schools have always had the opportunity to demonstrate a strategic approach with respect to diversity in their accreditations. What these schools are really saying is that meritocracy isn't, can't coexist with diversity. This is presumptuous and dangerous, perpetuation of the negative stereotype that students from backgrounds that, un- that are underrepresented in medicine are of lesser quality or unable to compete. Diversity is no reason to opt out of a competitive process, especially as some of those medical schools actually encourage their alumni to vote in the United States News Best Hospital rankings. The United States News rankings have long been the benchmark for medical schools, but they have also influenced schools' performance specifically in carrying out academic missions of education, clinical care, and research. For that reason, schools can and should have a robust debate about the rankings methodology and inputs, particularly when it comes to subjective peer assessments that are anything but objective since deans have limited knowledge about the quality of other programs. Schools should push for a system that evaluates all the relevant information about academic excellence in medical education. Use of standardized, transparent, and objective performance data would allow for greater market efficiency and offer a clear benefit to applicants. 
schools opting out of the United States news ranking have stepped away from the debate about how to deliver excellent health care, education, and research. Those citing diversity concerns as their reason for abandoning the field also risk undermining any genuine diversity, equity, and inclusion commitment. Even if these schools didn't intend to imply that diversity and excellence are mutually exclusive, that's what they're doing. It's not an implication we can accept. Let's focus instead on the necessary and meaningful work required to remove real barriers to diversity in our medical schools, ensuring all students receive exposure to healthcare specialties, access to mentors, and support for the cost of their education. Let's be honest about how we can use a competitive landscape to work harder without eclipsing the process that has only begun. Let's ensure that the increasingly diverse communities we serve see themselves reflected in the physicians who will soon care for them. Now, Pauline Steinhorn, why my grandmother helped a Nazi's boy. Israel said it received a request for earthquake relief from Syria and will send aid. Bashar al-Assad's government which maintains a state of war with Israel, denies having made the request. Israel's willingness to help care for enemy civilians reminds me of a story I discovered in the journal of my maternal grandmother, Bronia Feldman Rubinstein. A Polish Jew, Bronia was imprisoned during much of World War II in several Nazi concentration camps, including Bergen Belsen and worked as a nurse in the camp infirmary. In that capacity, she made a habit of deceiving the Nazis by reporting that her patients had the flu instead of typhus. If it was typhus, the patients would have been shot. One evening in the summer of 1943, Bronia was startled when a guard ushered her out of the camp. She wondered if her deception had been discovered and feared she would be killed that night. Instead, the guard told her that his infant son was sick and no doctor was nearby to help. Could he trust her to help his guard, help his child? Under the guard's gruff manner, my grandmother perceived the plea of a frightened father. Refusing wasn't an option. The child was innocent. The boy bore no responsibility for the sins of his father. Bronius showed the child's mother how to reduce his temperature with cold baths and how to use steam to ease his coughs. The next night when the guard came back for her, she brought a tincture to lower the boy's fever. He recovered. Soon there were more sick children of other Nazi guards for Bronia to care for. When I first read this story, I wondered if I would have been as forgiving. At that point in the war, Bronia's husband and their two youngest daughters had been transported to the death camp at Treblinka. She knew there was little chance of seeing all of them alive again. Yet she continued to nurse those who needed help, whether they were fellow inmates or the children of Nazis. My grandmother survived the war, immigrated to the United States with her only surviving daughter, my mother, and continued her nursing career in Baltimore. She died in 1994 at 85. 
The trust my grandmother earned by nursing her enemy's children allowed her to save more of her fellow inmates. She had broken down barriers to touch a shared humanity. The late Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi of England, wrote, Your enemy is also a human being. Hostility may divide you, but there is something deeper that connects you. The covenant of human solidarity. Surely that's what Israel had in mind when it carried out Operation Good Neighbor during Syria's civil war. The humanitarian aid program sent hundreds of tons of food and clothing and established three medical facilities at the border that treated thousands. In the wake of Syria's destructive earthquake, Sachs' words are relevant once again. A decent society, he observed, is one in which Enemies do not allow their rancor or animosity to prevent them from coming to one another's assistance when they need help. It shouldn't take a natural disaster for the rest of us to remember that. And now, Jiddu's Guide to a Long and Happy Life. My grandfather drinks one cup of Black Folgers coffee every morning. No cream, no milk, no sugar. He brews it himself. Beware the fate of having a Starbucks or Dunkin' cup in the hand around Jack Hajar, for he will surely make a comment. His grandchildren routinely hide their coffee shop purchases in the car before running inside to visit. Those three bucks add up, he always says, often calculating the annual waste of a daily Dunkin' run. How I'd hate to tell him that I spent $7 on a fancy Manhattan brew the other day. To those toting cups of retail java, he often suggests ditching the daily purchase and investing the equivalent in the stock market. Jadu, as his grandchildren call him, Lebanese Arabic for grandfather, is 98. Sharp, upright, generous, modest, sometimes strict, and funny. He plants a garden every spring and goes on daily walks. He reads the paper every day and does the crossword. He's always well-dressed, wearing a polo shirt with khakis for lounging and a three-piece suit for church every Sunday. He's able to continue wearing those splendid custom-tailored suits he bought six decades ago because he's maintained the same weight since he served in the Navy during World War II. He has this remarkable vigor because he lives his life the same way he approaches coffee. He avoids overindulgence and takes only what he needs. A child of the Great Depression and the son of Lebanese immigrants, he learned never to waste anything or buy something he can't make himself. Coffee grounds become fertilizer for the garden. Money not spent at Starbucks or on fertilizer turns into generous checks for our parish and various charities. The sweetener not wasted in his coffee saves him from guilt and high blood sugar should he indulge in his one luxury, dessert. Sometimes his grandchildren sabotage him into indulgence. Knowing his only vice will make sure dessert is his favorite, key lime pie. He'll never ask for it if given the choice. He lives a humble life, though he can afford not to. And though I sometimes wish he'd let us spoil him, he's taught me that life is sweetest when you don't chase indulgence. The lows aren't as painful 
and the highs are a triumph. His joys are fundamental and spontaneous. His favorite western is on TV. The lawn is getting enough rain. The rabbits didn't get to the cucumbers. His granddaughter stops by for a visit, and his wife says, I love you. There is only one instance of Judo buying an expensive coffee. He was visiting his girlfriend in Manhattan in 1960 while she was working for the United Nations. A vivacious, glamorous, and certainly less economical Evelyn Corey had stolen his heart. He spent $17, after inflation, far more than he would have at Starbucks, on two coffees and some pastry at a swanky Manhattan restaurant to impress her. Sixty-three years later, they are married with three children, eleven grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. What looked like a splurge turned out to be an investment. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.